You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We've been in the Gospel of John for more than half a year, and we're coming in close to the final final uh, weeks in John. And, and looking at John chapter 3 today, John 3 is a famous chapter. You're familiar with it, even if you haven't been in the church for a long time or know your Bible. You're familiar with John chapter 3. There's a lot in there. Today we're going to be starting to read in John 3, starting in verse 22. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. John 3, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing, unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word. Here we find this famous chapter in the Gospels, John chapter 3. This is where we hear, this is where we hear the famous line in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is the chapter where we hear of the concept of being born again. You've heard of being a a born again Christian. This is where we hear that. Today we see another famous line, maybe not as famous as those two, but a famous line this time coming from a man named John, known as John the Baptist, not the John, the writer of this gospel, but John the Baptist. And when talking about Jesus, he says this, he must increase, I must decrease. And this declaration we see within this great confession is a a struggle, a struggle that we all face, this human struggle, a struggle for purpose and joy in life, a struggle for meaning, a struggle to figure out, you know, who am I in life and what is my calling? What is my purpose? Why does God have, have me here in this world? This struggle to control our circumstances, to have things our own way, to determine the outcome of our life. It's all within this. And John finds himself in this struggle, a struggle that you and I, I'm sure, can relate to. The temptation to envy what we don't have, a temptation to fear being eclipsed by the influence of others, 
a temptation to doubt if our life really matters that much or if God really loves us or if we're really safe and okay with him. I mean, these are existential questions that we have about life and about our relationship with God. John finds himself in there. And John's answer, though, to this struggle is found in five words, five simple words, five words that become to John a a confession for how he enjoys God and lives his life before God. It becomes to him a, a manifesto that is a foundation for his hope and his faith. Those five words, I am not the Christ, become for him a a manifesto for his life that ultimately gives him joy and assurance. This five-word manifesto is an example to us as well for how we are to bring truth and faith into every struggle in our life. What is God's purpose for our life? How do we bring faith into the circumstances of our life? And we will see that if we can declare and confess this confession, I am not the Christ, it will bring so much meaning into the struggles that we face. And here, John reveals three struggles that I think are so relevant to us. A struggle to be made right before God, a struggle to find joy in God, and our struggle for assurance with God. Let's look at these three struggles and how this confession speaks to it. First, our struggle to be made right with God a struggle we all face from time to time, a struggle to be right. God, how do I know I'm, I'm okay with you, you're okay with me, and I'm good in your eyes? You know, we're first introduced to this concept that we, we see this overlapping ministry of John and Jesus. We have Jesus' disciples, and they're baptizing, and we have John's disciples, and they're baptizing down the road. And baptism was common in this time. Baptism didn't just start with, with Jesus. Uh, there were various groups of people baptizing. They had their small followings, different teachers and rabbis, and, and, and it was in view of this spiritual purity. Uh, you can see why water is used as this element for spiritual cleaning and spiritual purity. I mean, water washes away dirt. And if someone becomes dirty, their hands are dirty. Uh, Using water is an effective solvent to clean yourself. And in the same way, uh, water was used as a symbol of spiritual purity as well. We're given a glimpse into the kinds of conversations that would happen in this time period that would come up in these days. Conversations like, well, what really does make a person clean before God? What really does wash someone of their sins so that they can be with God and feel pure before him. How does a person become right with God? Purity was a a fundamental characteristic of the Jewish people. God presents himself as holy and pure and undefiled. And his people were people of uh, sinful habits and sinful hearts and attitudes who became impure and defiled. But God made provision for his people to come close to him, as they were impure and he was pure, God, the, through the provision of sacrifice and ceremonial cleaning and, and, all, and different kinds of, of ritual and the law of God. And so God's people embraced this, this ritual of cleaning as a way to prepare their hearts to trust in God and have faith in him. And some would take this to the extremes. Well, if washing myself once a week is a symbol of my purity before God, well, I'm going to take a bath every single day to be pure before God. It's almost like we're reminded of Peter when Jesus comes up and washes his feet. 
And Jesus says, you can't have any part in me unless you let me wash your feet. And he says, well, then not just my feet, wash everything. And he was missing the point. Some would take baths every, every day just to feel clean before God. Maybe it's where we got that phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness. This correlation of like, if my life is good, if I'm clean before God, if I'm doing good things, if I'm avoiding certain sins, then I feel before God and in his eyes that I am, I'm okay. I'm pure and I'm clean. And we see in this time, there's a lot of conversations about that. Lots of talk about what makes a person clean with God. And it's the very sort of conversation that happens in this passage between John's disciples and a certain Jew that comes up and has this conversation. Our passage says discussion. But if we look at this word and look at here, I'm going to list off some synonyms of the discussion that they're having. Commanding, complaining, cursing, denying, disagreeing, informing, confronting, slandering, divisive dissension. This is the kind of contentious dispute where there is this bitter disagreement as to what makes a person right in God's eyes. This will always be a fight. There will always be a fight of, about what makes a person clean and right before God. There will always be a fight over what makes a person pure. People will have different opinions about what must be done, what kind of religion they need to follow, what kinds of attitudes they need to have, what kinds of rituals they need to engage in. And there will always be competing groups that are similar in some ways and yet dissimilar in other ways. And they'll always be fighting with each other. We might do this today. In fact, we, we know that we do this today. For the religious people, this conversation happens all the time. Well, we try to live a moral life. How do we become right before God? Well, we obey his commands. We live a moral life. We try to pray our prayers and to live with integrity. We try to, to be the person that God wants us to be. We avoid certain sins and we invest in certain habits. We do the right thing. You know, even irreligious people, non-religious people have, have their, their views as well for how to live this way. It may not be about purity and morality, but it's about living the good life and living free from regret or living an authentic life or don't be a hypocrite. Or it's about living according to your own view of mortality or maybe your own view of the golden rule. Everyone, everyone has a rule in their life for this is what makes me good. This is what makes me true. This is what makes me pure. Believe it or not, there's even a time when rightness before God was measured by what politicians we voted for or what news station we watched, you know, like a long time ago. Now, see, we struggle with these things today too. See, we even say, we say, this is what makes you right with God. This is what God wants. This is the right behavior. This is the right attitude. I can't believe you say you're a Christian if you do this and don't do that. John, he drops the mic on this conversation so quickly. There's this contentious dispute and he drops the mic when it comes to the rightness before God. And there's this struggle that we all have to be right before God. And he asserts it is not an issue of what makes you right with God, but who makes you right with God. It is not an issue of what makes you clean. It is an issue of who makes you clean? And they are just disagreeing. They are fighting. They are cursing one another. They are slandering one, slandering one another and saying, you're wrong about thinking this is what makes you right. And John says, 
all this talk about your righteousness, about your character and being right before God, and you've missed it. This is about Jesus making you right with God. And he says, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. And to say this confession, it says so much. To say I am not the Christ is to say that our deepest needs for connection with God, our deepest needs for forgiveness, for purity of heart with God are not found in ourselves, but they are found in Jesus. The purity that we long for, the integrity of our hearts that we need, it is not found in what we do. It is found in Christ. And so John is saying, I want to get out of the way so this conversation isn't about what my disciples do or what their disciples do. I want to get out of the way so that you can see the real hope and that is in Christ and I am not him. And that's good news for us all. There's this Christian song that was made popular a few years ago, I think, and heard on the radio a lot. And it's, maybe it's still popular, just not popular in our home. Um, it's basically, I'll tell you why. Uh, it's basically this. Here's kind of the theme of the song. The person is singing in the song and saying, God, there's so much wrong with this world. There's so much broken and people are hurting. Uh, people are disobeying and rebelling against you. People are hating one another. And our world is broken. God, will you please send an answer? Will you please bring restoration? And so there's famine and division and confusion and hurt and pain and alienation from people. No one is getting along. God, answer my prayers. And then God chimes in in the song and says, I have answered your prayers. I have given you to the world. What a bummer. (laughs) Like what a bummer of a song. If that's true, I owe you a sincere apology. If the answer to the world's greatest and deepest needs is is me, (laughs) I am so sorry. And if, if, if I am the answer to your struggle, if I am the answer to your longing, if I am the answer to your depravity of heart, I owe you an apology. And and frankly, if you are the answer to my longing in life, then I think you owe me an apology too. (laughs) No one can be that. I can't live up to that in your life. You cannot live up to that in my life. And John knew who he was and he says, I am not the Christ. I'm not the answer you're looking for. I am not the hope that you've been looking for. And he was able to, in confessing this, I am not the Christ, this five-word manifesto. He was able to avoid and resist the temptation to make it all about himself. Because people were wanting to make it about him. He's had a successful and thriving ministry and people were flocking to him. And so people were hoping he was the answer to all of their longings and deepest needs. And yet no human person can fit that job description. It was easy, could have been easy for John to take, that, to take that platform, to take that mantle of responsibility and affection and admiration in his world, and he resisted it, and he said, I am not the Christ. And John says, the Christ, and maybe you need reminding of this, that Jesus' last name was not Christ, right? Christ was his title. Christ is his function. Christ is the, the role that he plays in the world. Christ is the word Messiah, and Messiah is literally the anointed one of God the, God, the one who God the Father appointed to be the answer to the world's problems, to be the answer to our heart's problem of sin, rebellion, depravity, uncleanliness. 
He is the one that is appointed to, to take the impure and to make it pure. He is the one who was appointed to reverse the curse of sin in the world and all of its consequences. To say that you are not the Christ is such good news. To say that I am not the Christ is such good news. And there is a Christ, the only Son of God, Jesus the Christ. He is the only one who could be perfectly right. He is the only one who needs to be perfectly right. And because he's the only one who can be a Savior, you and I don't need to be. We don't only need to save ourselves. We don't need to save others. We don't even need to save the world. And yet it's really common for us to struggle with this. No, I I need to be right. I need to be competent. I need to, to have everything tidy and right. Because this sense of personal righteousness, when I know that my life is put in order, then I feel like I'm okay with God. When I'm not making mistakes, I feel like God loves me more. When I am clean and feel clean in my own life, then I feel like God looks upon me with greater favor. We do this all the time. We connect our personal righteousness and rightness with our sense of righteousness before God. But that's something you and I can never, ever accomplish on our own because we are not the Christ. And it's something so good news like this. It gives us freedom. And John tells us it's not just that it's good to not be the Christ and that there is a Christ and it's not me. It leads to joy. Joy in knowing that you are not the Christ. When we make it about Jesus and not about ourselves, we engage in this struggle now to find joy where only true joy can be found. This is John's struggle, our struggle to find joy. Apparently, this discussion from what makes us right with God and purification and, and how baptism and who's doing it right, it, is, it stirred some further reflection on the durability of John's ministry. Right? Do you see that? Uh, now, many people are leaving John's ministry. Those are disciples of John, and now they're leaving John, and they're going to follow Jesus. And John's ministry was booming. I mean, he was kind of the hottest thing on the scene at the time. People were tithing and getting baptized and getting involved in a life group and going to 52 tables, and, and they're just, they were just great church people. John's church was booming, and then along comes Jesus. Jesus opens up a church down, down, you know, on the banks of the river, Jordan, and everyone leaves and they're like, hey, did you guys hear about Jesus? Hey, let's go. At least, you know, even Andrew, Andrew, one of Jesus' disciples, was a follower and disciple of John. And now everyone leaves John and goes to Jesus. At least that's how it feels. And some of John's remaining disciples, you know, imagine coming up to him and saying, you know, these are some of his good friends. They've been with him for years. And, and they're like, hey, man. They put their hand on his shoulder and they say, gosh, I'm so sorry. I know that Jesus is a good friend of yours, actually, and, and I know that you care about him, and, but this has to hurt. You know, a lot of people are leaving your ministry and, and going to his ministry. I, I know that he's your friend, but this must really sting. I mean, honestly, man, how do we even compete with this? Like, he's literally walking on water. <laughs> and then he's like turning that water into wine, <laughs> I even heard he like raised a guy from the dead. Jesus, I think we're done, or John, I think we're done. <laughs> I think we should close it up. I mean, how do we compete with this? John is losing influence. 
John is losing ministry. He's losing reputation. He's losing admiration. He's losing his position in the community. People don't care about him as much as they used to. And he says what? He says, I've never been happier. I have never been more joyful. Now my joy is actually complete. Why? Because he is not the Christ. And finally, the Christ has come. He knows that he is not the Christ. And Jesus has come and he uses this metaphor of a, of a wedding. This metaphor of, of the groom at the wedding and the best man. And just as a friend is content to assist the groom on his special day, John is so happy to point people to Jesus rather than himself. Because it's not about him. Could you imagine a, a best man at a wedding, you know, after the ceremony, refusing to dance because his best friend is just getting all the attention? It's just not fair. Of course not. When the best man knows his role, the best man is there and he's, he's, got, he's nervous, he's excited and then he sees the groom come in and he says, now is the time to make it all about him and he's full of joy. He says, this is not about me. He's about to take his bride and this is gonna be a celebration and we are called the bride of Christ. We are the ones that Jesus calls to himself to love, to be faithful to, to endure, to be long-suffering, but to pour out his love and sacrificial love. And John is saying, I know my role and it is not to save the world. And that is so good because I am a very bad savior. You and I make very poor saviors. That is a job description that none of us are capable of fulfilling. We would be fired in a moment and you cannot save yourselves. You are not the answer to your greatest needs and neither am I. John can serve as an example to all of us. It is not about us. It is all about Jesus. And that is a good thing because we make poor saviors. But we like to give it a try, don't we? <laughs> we like to give it a chance. I know we're not, I, I make a poor savior, but um, I'm a little bit better of a savior than you are. <laughs> That's because you're not very talented or gifted or, you know, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to try to save myself. I'm going to try to do good. We could be good saviors if we just tried a little harder, but we're really, really bad at it. And John says, he must become greater and I must become lesser. And this is not a bad thing. You know, John, he is not grudgingly conceding his life to Jesus. He is not saying to his disciples, we gave it a good go, but all good things come to an end. Do you get that sense? Not at all. He is saying, finally, the good has come. We could get out of the way. It is not like giving your life to Jesus is conceding joy. Giving your life to Jesus is finally embracing true joy. John finds his joy. Finally, he finds his joy. And it is to put Jesus in the rightful place in his life, which is right on the throne of his heart. 
You know, it not only points to John's joy, it also points to his faith. Because when we're talking about joy here, we're not talking about an emotion. We're not talking about just a, a blind faith. We're not talking about just uh, the stirring up of, of ambition. We're talking about a faith-fueled contentment with Jesus. He trusts in God's sovereign purposes. When he says, he must become greater, I must become lesser, he is not saying, I have to become lesser. He's got to become greater. That's just the way that it goes. No, he is saying this is God's purpose that Jesus would take the focal point of my life. It is God's purpose that you and I would take the backdrop of our lives. This wedding, this our life is not our wedding. Our life is not about us. Faith is realizing that God's good purposes always stand hidden behind all human actions, whether we recognize them or not. And that is so hard because life is hard and we only see what we can see, but this is faith. Faith is knowing that behind the scene, in the hidden ways that we are unaware of, God is working out his good purposes. And will we be tempted in those times to be our own savior We'll be tempted in those times to think that we know better than God. To say, God, how could this be your plan? This is obviously isn't right. Faith is realizing that his purposes stand hidden behind it all. Deep discontent and hopelessness as to the outcome of our lives betrays not only true belief and faithfulness, but it demonstrates an arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. True discontent and true hopelessness in life is ultimately saying, God, I can do it better. You obviously don't know what you're doing. And this was the prototypical sin of humankind. This is the sin in the garden when Adam and Eve saw something pleasing to them that God had forbidden. And they said, how could God forbid something that feels so good and looks so good? Obviously, God is mistaken. And then they thought that autonomy from God was better than dependency on God. And in their sin, the world and all of its joy crumbled in agony. You and I would make very poor saviors if we operated and lived just purely based on what we can see and understand. And so we can step aside from attempting to be savior of ourselves, to be the answer to all of our needs. We can step aside from being the answer to everyone else's needs. We can step aside from trying to be the savior of the world and to fix what is broken in this world. And we can rest in the joy of knowing that Jesus has taken that role upon himself and he's very good at it. No one can succeed. Actually, there's no one only God's true, obedient, and righteous son could fill that job description. Only he could do it and not fail. God incarnate who came into this world that was born under the law, that lived a perfect life, that died a sacrificial death, that, that rose from the grave in triumph, that ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God. Only one could do that. Only one was qualified. It's not you. It is not me. 
And it was only there from this movement of knowing where our purity in, in God's eye comes from, not in ourself, that leads to joy in knowing that we are the Christ and contentment in that. Only then can it lead to a true assurance that we belong to God and are his forever and nothing can take that away. Only when we are not the Christ and Jesus is the Christ who saves us can we really have assurance of our salvation. So we don't have to live every moment of the day always wondering, is this the day that God abandons me? Is this the day that I fall out of his graces? Is this the day that the other shoe drops and he finally gets fed up with me and I'm finally cast out from his presence forever? Only if we can say with true confidence, I am not the Christ, but there is one who is, can we ever have true assurance? John leads us into that struggle, our struggle for Assurance, and he closes this chapter returning to this theme of how we are made right with God. You see that? It starts out with this dispute about purity and purification, and it goes into where joy is found and in Christ, and then it returns to this idea of, of rightness with God. He mentions two destinies of all people. We see this division in Scripture a lot, and in many different analogies and many different metaphors are used sheep and goats and light and darkness and, and up and down and uh, narrow and wide and, and all of these different things. There are two destinies of all people. There is a destiny that leads to life and there's a destiny that leads to death. And then there's an issue and a struggle that we all have. How do I know which path I'm on? That'll cause a lot of anxiety. That'll cause a, a, a lot of torment. It'll cause a lot of doubt and confusion. How can I know? What evidence can I look to to be sure that I belong to God, that I'm on the path to life? Well, you have to come back next week. To, no, I'm just kidding. Let's get through that. Okay. Wouldn't that be like the most cruel thing? Have you ever wondered, you know, why it's easier, why it's easier to work for Jesus rather than trust in Jesus? I think, I think there's a lot of reasons and answers to that question, but I think in part is because we can look to the things we do. I mean, I could, I could give you evidence of the good things I've done. You could, give me, you could give me a report card. You can, tell, you, could, you can compare yourselves with others. You could feel good about yourself based on others. You can look at evidence and you could say, it feels good to do good because that's something tangible I can see to make me feel valued and accepted and acceptable before God. I can provide receipts for my good behavior. I can provide receipts for my good improvement. And when I'm good, I can say, okay, I'm good with God. And this is so comforting when we do good, but the problem is it's really uncomfortable when we do bad. When we base our assurance on our merit, it feels good when we're doing well, but it's the worst kind of pain when we know that we've screwed up. And I think when you live by that evidence, you know, here's the problem. When you live by the evidence of what you can provide to God to feel right with God, I think deep down in your heart, you know, you'll never be good enough. How good is good enough? I mean, what kind of evidence can you give to God to really feel at the end of the day and at the end of the life, at the end of your life, that you're safe with God? Can you ever really produce anything to give you full confidence? If, if you think so, you're deceiving yourself. You will never be good enough. 
and you will crush under the weight of that expectation that you need to be good enough. And John wants us to know that we can have assurance and that there is evidence that we belong on that path to life and it's evidence that we do not produce. We need to ask that question, how do I know that God has made me right with him? What do we look to? What evidence is provided here? And John gives us the evidence. It's not what makes you clean. It is who makes you clean. And here is how you know that he has made you clean before God. In verse 20, uh, 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son. He's given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Isn't that something The evidence here has nothing to do with the righteousness that you produce before God. The seal of God's promised cleansing. What's a seal? It's a guarantee. It's a mark of authenticity. The seal of the stamp, the kingly stamp from his ring that says, this belongs to me. We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about relationship, acceptance. We're talking about love. We're talking about connection and belonging. We're talking about God's fullness of affection for us. We're talking about all the heavenly blessings that he has promised. And the seal of God's blessing is on those who hear Jesus' testimony and believe him. Full stop. End of the chapter. And he's done. This is the evidence, the only evidence that we can point to. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You want the good life? You want the joyful life? You want to have confidence and contentment and to know that there is a a love of God that can never be taken away, no no matter how far you have fallen? It will never come from the what? It'll always come from the who in your life. It'll always come from Jesus. Remember, Jesus never expected you to take the place as Savior. He never asked you to. Never invited you into it. You are trying to perform a job he never asked you to apply for. But he took the place of the sinner he never asked you to be Savior. And we never asked him to be our Savior, but he, he takes the place of sinner. The Savior takes sin and guilt on the cross for us. And because you have a, a substitute Savior, you are free to cease from striving and you are free to start resting in this new identity as a fully forgiven Perfectly, perfectly accepted and dearly loved child of God. There is evidence in your life that you can point to to make you feel like that is just not fair. The sins you have committed, the rebellion, the lack of faith, the wrongs in your life might be numerous. And Jesus took all that on the cross. And he says, you were never intended to save yourself from the penalty of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his son 
to die for us, that whoever believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. It was never about you. And if you know the rest of John's story, oh man, you're, it, you know it doesn't get better for him. So what happens? John believes in Jesus and he says, I am not the Christ. He must decrease and I must, no, that's not right. He must increase and I must decrease. Don't get that wrong. John had no idea how much decrease he had to have. It goes from bad to worse. He loses his ministry. He loses his influence. He loses, he loses it all. He is put in prison and then he is beheaded. He is murdered in prison. He has no idea how much worse it is going to get. How does the story end? Happily ever after, John? Because you trusted in Jesus and it gets better from here, right? Nope. And John enters into another struggle, another wrestling in his heart, another doubt of faith. And he's in prison and here's how it goes. Well, Matthew tells us this, Luke tells us this account. John's in prison, unlawfully imprisoned, and one of his disciples comes just to check on him. And John looks at his disciple and he says, hey, could you do me a favor? And he's like, yes, John, what do you need? He says, I'm hurting in here, man. Can you do me a favor? Because um, things are really bad and I, I think I'm going to die in here. Could you go to Jesus? And could you maybe ask him a question for me? And he says, anything, what do you want me to ask? And he says, could you ask him if he's really the one that we were waiting for or if there's somebody else? Is there a different Messiah? Is there a different Christ? Because this can't be the way it's supposed to be. And his disciples like, yeah, gosh, man, I'm sorry, but I'll go ask him. And he goes, and he goes to Jesus. He says, hey, Jesus, John has a question. Um, he wants to know if you're the one he should be waiting for or if he should just give up and look for somebody else. And John says this, or Jesus says this, yeah, go tell John this. Tell him, the blind are receiving their sight, the lame are walking, the lepers are being made clean, the deaf can hear, the dead are being raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. I mean, that's really beautiful and poetic and all, but like a simple yes would have been much better, don't you think? So, so you want me to tell him all that? <laughs> yeah, so remember this. Tell him all this. I wonder if that would be any comfort to John. Actually, we know that it is because John was a witness and he knew 800 years ago there was another witness of this Messiah, another witness of this Christ. 800 years before the life of John and the life of Jesus, there was a, a man named Isaiah. And Isaiah was told by God to give this message to the people of God and said, the Christ is coming, the Messiah is coming, and I want you to know exactly what he will be like and what he will do. And do you know what the sign of Jesus' the Messiah's coming would be into the world? You guessed it. The blind would receive their sight, the lame would walk, the leopard would be made clean, the deaf would hear, the dead would be raised up, and the poor would have the good news preached to them. When John would hear that message repeated back to him and his disciples saying, I don't know what this means, but this is what Jesus said, John would know in that moment, we're done looking. We're done looking for our Savior. This is the one we've been waiting for. He is the one to make me right with God. He is the one to give me fullness of joy in the midst of the worst of circumstances. He is the one to give me confidence and contentment in my salvation and assurance that no matter what sins and doubts come my way, that I am held secure in the love of God and no one can take that away because we've been waiting for this one and he is here. 
And then he was killed. But he went to his death in faith. And we are given this testimony for our benefit. Our benefit is this. You are not the Christ. I am not the Christ. We are not the answer to our deepest longing in the world. We are not the answer to our deepest sins. We are not the answer to the brokenness in this world. And what it means, what it means that we need to get out of the way and to put Jesus in his rightful place on the throne of our hearts and as king over, this, over the created world is that there is, one, there is one who is the Christ. It is Jesus. And when we believe that, to receive him is to receive all the promises of God. To believe in him is to be forgiven of our sins and made right with God so that from God's eyes as he looks upon us, he does not see impure and defiled. He sees purity. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son. He sees us and nothing in the way. To believe this is to believe that we are forgiven of our sins. To trust in him is to find joy in the midst of struggles no matter what's happening. We can trust in him. Why? Because you are not the Christ and there is one who is. It is to rest in him. To rest in him is to know that you don't need to wait for anyone else. There is no one else coming and there, there doesn't need to be. Christ has come and he has died and he was buried and he rose and he ascended into heaven to make a way for you and I. And it is there. He is preparing a place for us. And John says, if you believe in him, all of that is yours. The evidence to which we point is the righteousness of Christ, his work for us on the cross and his promises that are faithful. And one day he is coming back again. He will return to take us to himself. And in that day, we will have the fullness of joy that will never cease. And we'll be once and for all released from the burden of sin's consequences and the pain of this broken life. So no matter what happens, we can trust, we can believe, and we can rest. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.